today we're looking at big words of faith. We're looking at sanctification. You're probably thinking, what in the world has he brought in there with him today? For most of you, you know what it is. If you're like me, you don't see this very often because usually you're in the woods. But this is a putter. In golf, you, everybody usually has at least one of these in their bag. Some people like to keep two, but I just keep one. And a putter is a, it's a um, golf club. But it looks dynamically different from any other golf club that you're going to have in your bag, right? People have different looking putters. Some are extremely long and they're almost vertical. And they'll hold them like this. They'll hold them in different ways. But the putter is set apart from any of the rest of the golf clubs in the golf bag. So when you've got that putter, you should even stand different when you hold a putter. You stand kind of over it like this with your legs together. And you look and you're going to swing and you're going to putt. And you usually don't. Usually don't do like you do with a driver, do you? With a driver, I'm going to get away from his keyboard. But when, when you got a driver, here, I'll stand in the middle. I'm real long. It's hard for me to find any space up here. But when you got that driver, you know, you rear back like that. You're not going to do that with a putter. With a putter, you're going to keep it kind of close. But you see, it's designed very differently. It's got a totally different purpose from a driver or from, a, um, from your, irons and your irons and your woods. It looks very different from your putter. It's sanctified. It's set apart for a specific purpose. It's designed for the, for the time that you get up on the green and the grass is super short so you can putt to the hole. It's set apart. If you will, it's sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart. And that's what we're going to look today. We're going to look at the word of sanctification, which is the act of setting something apart. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at salvation. We have looked at justification last week. And today we are looking at sanctification. So if you will, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 will be in verses 1 through 17. So in, as you're getting there, in understanding how the putter is set apart, we too, as redeemed people, are sanctified. And sanctification is a process, a progressive work of God and man, that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. There are three stages of sanctification. Tony Evans puts it this way, they're positional, progressive, and uh, perfected stages of sanctification. And we're going to talk about those just a little bit before we truly get into the uh, passage of Scripture today and, and exegete what Colossians chapter 3 says in the process of sanctification for our lives. Right now, I'm just defining to you what it means. It's one of those big words, and we really need to know what it means, how it works. So there's three stages of sanctification. Sanctification has a definite beginning at regeneration. It has a definite beginning at regeneration. And this is a positional sanctification. Sanctification, as Paul quotes in Acts 20.32, Paul refers to Christians as all those who are sanctified. And that means they were sanctified and they will continue to experience the influence of the past action of being sanctified. When we receive Christ, we receive salvation by grace through faith. At that moment, we are justified. We are made right in the sight of God because God imputes his righteousness unto us. We talked about that at length last week. And then we are sanctified. From that moment forward, we are set apart from the world. We are set apart to Christ. Spiritually, we are positionally in heaven. 
Your eternal life does not, ex does not begin once you die. Your eternal life with Christ begins at the moment of salvation. You are sanctified. You are set apart. Ephesians 2.6 says this. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are sanctified positionally. We are already there spiritually. And someday we'll be there in person. We can think of our position as the past tense of sanctification. It happened at a definite moment in the past and is still in effect. From this standpoint, we are sanctified. Now, sanctification also increases throughout life. Sanctification is progressive. It's an ongoing effort. Paul says that throughout the Christian life, we all are being changed into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to another. That's found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are progressively becoming more and more like Christ as we go on in the Christian life. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. One way we may look, we may also look at 2 Corinthians 7.1 is, Keep becoming more sanctified in your behavior as is fitting for those who reverence God. We need to be sanctified. We need to be setting apart our behavior as is fitting for those who honor or reverence God. Sanctification is also, lastly, completed at death for our souls and when the Lord returns for our bodies. Sanctification is perfected, which is glorification. We'll talk about that next week. We're not going to spend a lot of time there today. But the author of Hebrews says that when we come into the presence of God to worship, we come to the spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews 12, 23, which implies that when you enter heaven, you are entering a presence of men that have been made perfect. We're not perfect this side of heaven, but once we get into heaven to be in his presence, the mortal has completely put on immortality. We put on the full righteousness of Christ, or else we wouldn't be able to be in the presence of God. It's fully there. There's no more of this sanctifying need as is needed while we're here on earth. So this is only appropriate because it is in anticipation of the fact that nothing unclean shall enter into the presence of God and the heavenly city, Romans 21, 27. Sanctification is never completed in this life. Sanctification is never completed in this life. When Jesus commands us to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 48, this simply shows that God's own absolute moral purity is the standard toward which we are to aim and the standard for which God holds us accountable. When Paul commands the Corinthians to make holiness perfect in the fear of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he is pointing to the goal that he desires them to reach. He does not imply that any reach it, but only that this is the high moral standard toward which God wants all believers to aspire. Now, from that understanding, I hope you understand sanctification is a process. It is an action that has happened once in time. It is a process that will continue throughout our time on this earth. And there is a time when sanctification will end for each individual who is called on Christ in faith by grace. And that will be at the moment God calls them home. When they leave this earthly body and they're present before the Lord, they will be glorified. And that's the fulfillment of sanctification. So I wanted you to understand what is this word that we're talking about today when we talk about the big word that is sanctification. Now before we dive into our passage of scripture today, let me pray and then we'll begin looking at what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae about what it takes 
for us to continue this progressiveness of becoming more like Christ every day of our lives while we're on this earth. So today we are in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. So let's look at verses 1 through 4. I'll read them as I come to them. Point number one is this. We are raised in Christ to sanctification. We are raised in Christ to sanctification. Look there at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, where he is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we are raised in Christ to sanctification. Now, obviously, we are raised in Christ because we've been saved. We placed our faith in him by his grace that he has offered to us. We are justified, but we are also raised to Christ for sanctification so we can be set apart. But I want you to understand first that this one of the key words, matter of fact, it's the very first word in verse 1. It says, if then. If then, that means there is a decision that has been made. If, if you have been raised with Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then these are the steps that you need to take to be sanctified, to be set apart from the world. If not, you're going to look, I'm going to look, this church is not going to look any different from the world which means we're probably not saved, which means we're not justified, and it means we're not being sanctified. We need to look different than the world. And he says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. So when he says, seek the things which are above, that means our hearts and the goals of our lives should be on the heavenly kingdom of Christ instead of the earthly footstool of Christ. It should not be focused on the things of this world. Although we have got to be a part of the world, we don't have to be a part of the world. Okay? We're going to have to be present here. We can't just segregate ourselves to an island and say, oh, we're sanctified. Yes, you are, but what good are you doing? If you're going to do that, you might as well ask Jesus to go ahead and bring you on home once you got saved. God wants us to live a sanctified life before the world so that they can see what's the good of following after Christ. What, what is the benefit of following after Christ? I could have done the same things over and over and over again. If there's no difference between you and I, there needs to be a difference between me who has confessed Christ and the individual who has not. And it should be a positive difference, an obvious difference. So we need to seek the things which are above. We need to set our mind on the things above, not the things of the earth. He says that. He says, uh, set your minds on the things above, not the things of the earth. Basically, it's the same exact thing. In, in, in the prayer that Jesus gives us, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we set our minds on the things above, we're going to say, Christ, what is, what is it about heaven that you want here? His perfect will to be done. If his perfect will is to be done, then those who have been saved by his grace should be pursuing that will. 
We should be pursuing that. And to pursue that means that we're going to have to be living a life that brings honor and glory to Christ so people can see it. To bring, kingdoms, to bring God's kingdom is to share God's love and to live in God's grace. It's to share God's love and to live in God's grace. Look at that next line. It says, verse 3, For you died and your life is in Christ. Excuse me. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So your sin nature has been buried and is dead, and now your life is hidden in Christ. And like I said, that's not for you to go and be a believer in secrecy. That's for you to be a, a believer in security. Okay? It's not for you and I to go and live a life of Christianity in secret. It's for us to live a life of Christianity in security. We are hidden in Christ. Christ has overcome the world, the Bible tells us. There's victory in Christ. So through him, we can move forward in life. Our newfound faith is never about hiding the faith we have, but being hid in Christ as our great protector. And then it says, when Christ returns, we too will be with him in glory. Christ is our life. Christ will appear again, and we shall then appear with him in glory. There is this hope. There is this life for those that are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, all things have become new. We are no longer that old person. And by getting away from that old person, Paul goes on in these following verses, verses 5-17, through 17, to tell us the things to put to death, the things to put off, the things to put on, and the things to let dwell and rule in our lives. That's the next four points, by the way. Okay? That's what he tells us right here in Colossians chapter 3. He tells us to put to death some things. He tells us to put off some things. He tells us to put on some things. And then he tells us to let these last things I'm going to mention to you dwell, and, uh, dwell in you richly. Let them be in you. Let them be named among you. So let's look at these next things that he says to us for our sanctification. Point number two, verses five through seven. Paul says to the church at Colossae, he says, I want you to put to death these things for sanctification's purpose. Look at verses five through seven. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So we've got some things to put to death. And when we think of this thing of putting something to death, it has a finality to it. It is done. These things should not be named among the believer anymore. There are some things that we're going to struggle with our whole lives, but there are some things that just need to be put to death. But I want you to understand this. Sanctification is not a 50-50 deal. Where I do 50% of the work, Jesus does 50% of the work. Jesus does all the work, you just happen to assist him in it. Okay? We could not put anything to death. Jesus died so that death may die. 
So we have no power here. The power is in Christ. We are buried in Christ. We live in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Everything of this sanctification process is only by the power of Christ. We may be active in it, but it's by the power of Christ that we can actively do it. So don't think for a minute that it's, oh, this is my work, because then you're getting into boasting again. You know, what's the Bible say about that? You know, uh, for it is by grace, through faith, that you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Even your sanctification is not for your own glory, it's for God's glory. So remember that as we walk through this, okay? As those raised in Christ, we are to put to death these following things. And there is no way that Jesus would walk in any of these sins. So if we identify with him, we won't walk in them either. These are the things to put to death. The first thing he says is fornication. And if you'll notice, in these sets of verses, every set of verses are slightly different uh, about what to put to death, put off, and put on. This first part is very, it's very sexually inclined about the things to put to death. Because any, any sex, Scripture tells us, is, is, is against not only someone else, it's against your own body, the Bible tells us. So this is a dangerous place to reside is any kind of sex outside of marriage, which is what is fornication. Fornication is defined as any sex outside of a marriage of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And then there is uncleanness. F.F. Bruce says, this includes the misuse of sex, but is applicable to various forms of evil. Then Jesus enunciated the great principle that there is no ceremonial, but only moral and spiritual uncleanness. Not what goes into a man from hands that touch unclean things that defile the man, but the things that come out of his heart, evil thoughts, hatred, adultery, murder, etc. These defile a man. This is really what makes us unclean. Now granted, we don't need to be taking in a bunch of unclean things either. You don't need to be watching movies or, or listening to music or hanging out with folks that are all filthy, unclean sexually and all this kind of stuff like that. You don't need to be taking it in. But it, you, you might have to be around it to share the gospel with the, the people that are dealing with that stuff. But you really, it, it, it really will be revealed in you if it's a sin, if it's coming out of you, if you're promoting it, saying, influencing people to go see it or hear it, you know, that's, that's where the uncleanliness comes under the believer. But obviously, like I said, we don't need to be putting ourselves in those situations to be influenced by those things either. You know, it's one thing if you've got a friend that's struggling and you're trying to reach out to them and they're dealing with something, you don't need to abandon them to their sin so it's not that you're like, okay, I'm just going to, I don't need to be unclean. Well, you don't need to leave them wasting away in their sin. I mean, that's like I was talking about earlier. We don't need to segregate ourselves to an island. Who's going to get saved then? We need, to, we need to continue to preach the gospel, but not only preach it, live it. People can hear your words all day, but until they see your actions that follow after it, they're not going to believe what you say you believe. Faith requires some action. But we need to put these things to death. Fornication, uncleanliness, passion. Now you may say, wait a minute, how does passion? 
What's wrong with passion? What's wrong with being passionate? Well, it's, it's defining of it in the original language. This means to have vile passions. Not just to be passionate about something like, I really want to pursue this in my life. It's not talking about that. It's about vile passions. The desire to desire immoral things or perverted things. And then there's evil desire. Motive that is corrupt. Uh, motive, the motive of it is corrupt as well as the outcome. That's what it's talking about when it says evil desire. The motive is corrupt. And then there's covetousness, which is a big word. I've always struggled with saying that word, covetousness. But it's terribly destructive in three different ways. Here's three different ways that covetousness, which it talks about here in the Scripture, but it's defined a little better. Covetousness is idolatry. It says it right there in the Scripture. It says covetousness, which is idolatry there at the closing of verse 5. It's idolatry in that it only obtains when man thinks of life consisting in things possessed. Okay, let me read that again because I had to read it multiple times. It is idolatry in that it only obtains when man thinks of life consisting in things possessed rather than in righteous relationship with God. Okay, idolatry. I want to covet that. I want that. I want to possess that over saying, I want to have a righteous relationship with Christ. Okay, does that make more sense? Makes it a little bit easier to understand. Covetousness also, it is a sin against others for, the satisfy, for to satisfy the desires, others have to be wronged. You have to wrong somebody in covetousness to obtain that. And then, covetousness is also self-destructive for these wrong conceptions and activities always react upon the soul to its own undoing. Covetousness is a terrible sin. It's wanting what someone else has and not just saying, I'm willing to go work for something like that to obtain that. It's saying, I want theirs and I'm willing to get it at whatever expense. It's a dangerous place. It creates envy and envy and covetousness is very similar within itself, but it's also a much more aggressive form. And as you can see, it's idolatry, it's sin against others, and it's self-destructive. And those who choose this way are sons of disobedience. And they're not redeemed. And if not changed, they will incur the wrath of God, as the scripture says there. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Listen, we did. We did these things. We were prone to go to these things prior to a relationship with Christ. But once we confess Christ as Lord... No longer should these things be a draw to us. We should have put them to death. We should have ordered a funeral, got a coffin, opened it up, put them things in it, and nailed it down. And then saw it put in the ground. We got to put those things to death. Those are terrible things to have in the life of the Christian. Fornication, uncleanness, passion or vile passions, evil desires and covetousness. Those things need to be put in the ground, buried six feet under. They need to be done with. And if at all possible, we need to do the same thing with the next set as well. But we know we're human. We're still going to deal with these things. But we've got to put to death those things. Romans 6, 5 and 6 says this, For if we have been united together in the likeness of Christ's death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
We should no longer be slaves to this sin. And those type sins are the addictive type sins that make us bound to them. There's nothing that draws and keeps an individual in more than a sexual sin. You ask people who are hooked on pornography. You ask people who are just out and about swinging for some people today is what they call it. Doing whatever it is that they're doing. The sexual addictions of that is terrible. You got to put those things to death. Because those things recur in the mind much longer than they ever recur in the body. And if you could put those things to death, then the Lord will help you to be able to step away from that even easier. But you got to make that decision through the sanctifying power of Christ to put them to death. Now there's some other things we got to put off. Look at verses 8 through 11. But now you, now you yourselves are to put off all these. We put to death the others. Now we're going to put off these for sanctification. We need to put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. So right here we've got to put off for sanctification. Each of these sins, as you might have noticed, each of these sins are primarily committed by what we say. So we had the sexual sins we need to put to death. Now we've got these sins of the tongue, sins of, of our speech that we need to put off. When Paul calls the believer to a deeper disobedience, I mean, excuse me, to a deeper obedience, uh, he tells us to bridle our tongue. He tells us to bridle our tongue. Recall James 1.26. James wrote, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. You out running your mouth all the time, saying all kind of terrible things, stop it. Stop it. Put those things off. If you're a believer in Jesus, quit spreading stuff. Quit spreading lies. Quit, being, quit defaming your neighbor. Quit, quit making up false accusations. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So Paul makes an emphatic plea for the believer to put off those following things. And the following things I'm going to break down for you. Specifically things spoken. So to be set apart from the world and be set apart to Christ. He says... Anger. And this is not righteous anger. You know, Christ expressed righteous anger. He went into the temple. He was angry because they were misusing the Lord's temple. This is not what he's talking about. This is unrighteous anger. It's out of control and without biblical reasoning. This is when we explode and hurt people with our rage. We've got to be mindful about what comes out of our mouth. You know, used to people say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. It's the, one of the biggest lies you'll ever hear in your life. People will recall those words over and over and over again in their mind. People are more likely to remember a negative statement. Uh, like, I, I'm, I'm making up a statistic here. I didn't read this. But I was going to say it. Like 10 times more than they will a positive statement. I'm sure there's some statistical thing that's more accurate. But you think about that for a minute. If one person in this room said something negative to you and if 10 other people came up and said something positive, more likely you're going to be dwelling on that negative thought all day. 
We need to be mindful about the words we use. The tongue is like a fire set on, it's, it's, it's like it's set on fire from hell, James goes on to say. We've got to be mindful of our words. And when we're angry, sin not. Sin not. Because what's the first thing we do when we're angry? We start blabbing that mouth, don't we? Oh, buddy, we start, we start letting things fly. Accusations, blaming people, all kind of things. We just fly off the handle. We're all guilty of that. We've been guilty of that from time to time, right? Come on now, I'm not the only person up here saying this, right? My goodness. It's the truth. We've got to be, we got to be very cautious. We need to put that away from us. Wrath. It says anger and wrath. And this is strong, stern, or fierce anger. Deeply resentful indignation. I mean, this is going further. This is like trying to destroy somebody's character. This is where, like, I, I, just, I, just, I just can't stand that person anymore. I'm just going to say everything negative, And I'm going to put it out there. Whether, whether it be true or not, I'm just going to run them in the ground. That's, that's being wrathful with, with your speech. You need to be cautious of that. Malice. This is the desire to inflict harm, injury, or suffering on another, either because of a hostile impulse or out of deep-seated meanness. And if you're a believer in Christ, oh my goodness, deep-seated meanness should not be one of your characteristics. Oh, that person's a believer in Jesus. They've got deep-seated meanness. That's not, that's, that is, that, did, did, was that ever defined of Jesus? I don't know, anybody reading their Bible? Was that ever defined of Jesus? No, it was not. Come on now. The truth is, he was meek and lowly. He was peaceful. He was always trying to bring people to a point. Now, granted, like I said, when they misused the temple, he got a little upset. All right? Justifiably so. Righteous anger. But in most cases, you would never say that Jesus had a deep-seated meanness. And as Christians, which means little Christs, we should not have deep-seated meanness about us. We shouldn't be looking for a problem. We should be looking for a solution. That's what differentiates us from others. And then blasphemy. Blasphemy. In Judaism, this means an act of cursing or reviling God. For us, in a New Testament church, it's a disrespectful utterance or action concerning God or, or Jesus Christ. Or for us today, you, you see people put OMG and they use God's name in vain and all this other kind of stuff and think nothing about it. And that's using God's name in vain. It's the same thing. It's blasphemy. There's a crime. One of the definitions says it's the crime of assuming to oneself the rights or qualities of God and then irreverent behavior toward anything held sacred or priceless. That's blasphemy. We shouldn't be blasphemous people. Jesus was never blasphemous. We need to put that off. Filthy language. This is any language that is destructive to another's character or off-color words or jokes. Cursing and defaming another individual is uh, also what this is implying. We shouldn't have foul language coming out of our mouth using filthy language. Curse words and, and, and everything else and telling filthy jokes and sharing stuff that you shouldn't be sharing on social media. That's all part of your language now. It's a language that people consume. So you need to be mindful of that. Be mindful of that. Filthy language. Put that off. Put off lying. I mean, goodness gracious, folks, that's a Ten Commandment. 
Of course we should put this off. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this is an intended action to deceive someone from their benefit and for your selfish gain. We should, we should put off lying. We should put these things off from us. We have become new with the putting on of the new man. And with us becoming a new person, we have renewed knowledge in the image of Christ who created and recreated us. He originally created us, and then through the new birth, he recreated us. We should put these things away from us. Put them away. It's like taking off clothes. Being at the beach this week, you know, you go down to the beach, and you, you get in the ocean, and you're supposed to, before you even get in the swimming pool, you're supposed to shower off. Thankfully, there wasn't a lot of seaweed, but there was one day where there was some, and that gets in your trunks or your bathing suit, whatever. They didn't want that in the pool because it sets up mildew. So you got to rinse off very well before you're supposed to get in the pool. Sand, you know, you're probably going to get sand here at the beach. But you got to rinse off, and that's the thing. you got to take these things off. you got to take this off and put it away because you don't want it to be mixed with the new man that you are, new woman in Christ. Quit trying to mix things and let it be okay. Problems are going to be created when you mix the things. I mean, like they said, if you get in that swimming pool after being in the seaweed, the seaweed carries this stuff with it, and it messes up the filtration system. And it'll tear it up. So we couldn't do that. Same thing with a new man in Christ, with you and I. When we come to Christ, we've got to quit carrying the things of the world into our spiritual lives and our Christian lives and thinking everything's going to be fine. We've got to come before the Lord. We've got to repent. We got to confess because if we will confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Part of the sanctification process. It's what we need to do. We are no longer viewed from a perspective of earthly designations, but rather heavenly separations. We are new. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. You hear how separated that is? How sanctified that is? Chosen, royal, holy. His own special people. They, why is that? So you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That's the reason why you're sanctified. Who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. All the different stages to understand we are set apart. We are set apart. We should be different. So we put to death for sanctification. We put off for sanctification. Now let's look at what we put on for sanctification. Verses 12 through 14. Therefore, since we put to death and we put off, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, this is what we do. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts toward the Lord. Some translations say thankfulness in your hearts toward the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what are we to do? All right, we've, we've seen the negative side or the, or the casting off, the putting to death, the putting off. Now we've got to put on. There's things to put on to sanctify us from the world that reveals that we are different from the world. Beginning in verse 12, we see who we are to know what we are to do. We are elect. We're holy and beloved. And the, the scripture reveals to us that we are his workmanship, our masterpiece for good works. Holy means we are set apart to him and from the world. And beloved reveals God's heart toward us. I mean, the Bible calls Jesus his only begotten son, his beloved son, in some translation says that. And we're, we're putting that same type category. Beloved reveals God's heart toward us. So we need to put on the following things as those who are sanctified and are being sanctified. And these following actions are all based around relationships. They're all based around relationships. Look at this. You've got tender mercies. Tender usually means to be sensitive to the touch. You ever had somebody, ooh, that's tender. That's, that's a tender spot. You know, somebody ever pinch you on the back of the arm? Ooh, that's a tender spot. Brogan did that the other day and bruised me. I was like, man, what you do? Don't do that to me. That's a tender spot. You ever have somebody give you a hug and they slap you like right here? And you're like, oh, man, why'd you have to slap me right there? It's a tender spot. Sensitive. So it says put on tender mercies. Tender usually means to be sensitive to the touch. So this is a relational, sensitive touch of mercy toward those around them. So you know, like, you're going to reach out and you're not going to be, like, harsh or, 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 or like, slapping. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're going to be real tender with them. You're going to be, be, be real uh, mindful of how you treat them, tender mercies. In kindness, the ancient writers defined the original word, which is Christostos, as the virtue of the man whose neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own. His neighbor, his, whose neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own. That's kindness. Humility. And this is the parent to both meekness and long-suffering that's mentioned there as well. Meekness shows how humility will affect my actions toward others. Whereas long-suffering shows how humility will affect my reaction toward others. Meekness says, I will not dominate, manipulate, or coerce for my own ends, even if I have the power and ability to do so. Whereas long-suffering says, I will not become impatient, short, or filled with resentment towards those that uh, towards uh, the weaknesses and sins of others. Meekness and long suffering are are the children of humility, if you will. We need to bear with one another. Well, that's a difficult one sometimes, right? Bearing with one another. <laughs> this is referring to the burdens that others may have that you and I may assist with. We are, we are to consider one another and lift them up in prayer and in encouragement and in friendship. That's bearing with one another. And it's one thing that I think a lot of folks have lost in this day and age is bearing with one another. We just want to cancel somebody. Get them out of our life. I can't deal with that right now. I got my own issues. We got, we got to bear one another's burdens. 
Help each other out. And in forgiving one another, ooh, with this little stipulation at the end, as Christ has forgiven you. Ooh, boy, that's a big one, isn't it? These are big things to put on. It's a huge request or a command in our sanctification. We are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. To really see our to really see if our sanctification is working, try looking at those you've forgiven or have yet to forgive. We have been forgiven much. So what holds us back from forgiving others? I think it's this next thing. It's love. It's love. Look there at the end of that. And it says, and above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Which is the bond of perfection. This, this binds together all good things of sanctification. Binds together all good things of sanctification. All the actions and reactions of the life of the believer should be bound in love. Love is what compels us to reach for the life of holiness and perfection. And the imagery here is likened unto a large overcoat in the winter. You put on all these other layers and items of clothing. But here's what covers it all. It's the overcoat of love. You're to put on all these other things. Kindness. Humility. But yet to cover them all up, you put on love. And I think that's what hinders us from actually bearing with one another and forgiving one another. We need to be mindful of that in our lives today. And then lastly, point number five, let these rule and dwell for sanctification. You need to let these two things rule in your life and dwell in your life for sanctification. Verses 15 through 17. And it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word let is also a submission word. And this carries with it an understanding of a choice between two options. When we let something happen in our lives, we are not letting something else in our lives. So Paul wrote, let the peace of God and let the word of God dwell richly in you. The peace of God is a heavy contributor to what unites the body of Christ. Peace is the result of reconciliation. The reconciliation of the believer between God and man is the greatest point of peace in life. There's no greater point of peace. And he says, let the peace of God, let the peace of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Excuse me, that's the, the word of God. Let me back up to verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful let it rule in your body. Let that peace rule in you. And then the word of God. What does it say about the word of God? It needs to dwell richly in you and I in all wisdom. From the acquiring of biblical wisdom, we should be moving toward teaching and admonishing one another. There, we should never, you know, Paul said, I have not yet attained. 
we have not yet attained and we won't attain perfection or anything else this side of heaven. So what do we do? We continually pursue sanctification. And in sanctification, how are you going to be more sanctified than by reading the Word of God? Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. That means to have an abundance in you. So much so that spontaneously in song, it even bursts forth. I mean, that's what it's basically saying. Why, is, why are new songs being written over and over? Somebody somewhere has dwelled richly in the Word of God. And because of that, they said, Lord, I can't do anything but sing praises unto you. So let me write some music about that. That's the reason why there's new music written all the time. When You, sh you should never get to a point and say, well, I don't believe we should sing in this new music. What? then you need to let the Word of God dwell richly in you so you can figure out what you're missing out on. At one point, the songs that we've sang traditionally for years that are excellent and wonderful, the Word of God was dwelling richly in that individual. They wrote it. And we sang it. And now people are still dwell, uh, uh, richly dwelling in the Word of God and they're overflowing with these songs. And listen, for all of you, we've got several school teachers present with us, both teaching and, and retired all alike. One of the easiest ways for people to learn stuff is through putting it to music. You put scripture to music. You do, you do anything like that, and you'll be like, this just blows my mind how I can retain this. It's for teaching. So when he writes this, this is not just writing some flippant thing. This is God of all knowledge has given this to them because he knows this is how we learn the best. Why do we sing such songs with glorious, deep, theologically rich songs? Because we want the Word of God to dwell richly within you. Several years ago, Mac Powell and several artists came together. Mac Powell's the lead vocalist of Third Day. And... Um, I, I, man, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the CD or the album that they came out with, but there was a volume one and a volume two. And every single song was just straight scripture. And it's like, it's, it's, it's like folk, bluegrass, country kind of music. And I love it. And it's not really my style, but I love the music. I love it. Me and Julie one time years ago sang one of those songs. Had a guy named uh, Drew Nichols. He played uh, the guitar. And, and played the guitar for us while we sang it one time. And, and it was great music. But it all came from it. And every time I come across that verse in the Bible, I can't remember where it's at right now in my brain, but if someone were to say it, or if I were to read it, I'd be like, oh, I know that song. And I could sing the song. And I'm singing scripture. That's the reason why our kids, you know, if we do a kids choir at some point in the future, we need to be singing songs. The Gettys just came out uh, in 2021 with a new kids album that, that's, I mean, it's basically just hymns remade kid-friendly. I mean, it's, it's great stuff. And we teach these things so that the Word of God will dwell richly in them. And they'll write it on their hearts. The Bible says if we write the Word of God on our heart, we will not sin against God. We'll be less likely to sin against God, really, is the best way to say it. But it'll help us to not sin against God. So we need to let these things dwell within us. We need the Word of God in us. We need the peace of God 
uh, ruling our hearts and lives. And the peace of God will rule our lives if we will continually be pursuing a life of sanctification. And to be able to accomplish that, it's through Jesus Christ. And listen to this. That, that concludes down there at the end. It says, um, verse 17. I was up too high in my Bible here. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So whether you're putting it to death or putting it off or putting it on or letting it dwell or rule in you, do it all in the name of Jesus. Because the glory doesn't go to us. The glory goes to him. 